action. Welcome to Torn Stubbs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We are continuing our celebration of 21st century horror with The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers, and this time with a guest. Please welcome to the pod, Mike Munzer from the Evolution of Horror podcast. Mike, how are you doing? Hello, thank you so much for having me. That's all right. The evolution of horror is quite ambiguous. What could your podcast be about? (laughs) I know, I was always told, like, uh, make the title nice and clear in terms of what the podcast (laughs) is about, you know, so people know what they're getting. So I did. Uh, Yeah, we talk about the whole whole history of the horror genre, really. So we sort of uh, explore the genre, kind of subgenre by subgenre, I suppose. So we look at sort of slasher movies from the birth of cinema to now, and then we do a series on ghost movies, and we did a series on folk horror and witchy stuff. And so it's it's that kind of a thing, basically. We kind of look at the horror genre across different subgenres. How far back do you go? Uh, we went back to uh, Georges Méliès' uh, Manner oh, of the Devil hell. in a- wow. 1899 or something like that. So, Birth of cinema. Yeah. The year I, mean, I like, was bemitzvahed. That's quite yeah. far. <laughs> exactly. You remember it. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was uh, It was a good time. No, I think that's I think that's the quite interesting thing is that like we kind of explore the way in which horror is as old as cinema itself. I mean, like those stories about people screaming in movie theatres when the train came towards the station, right? I mean, you could argue that being scared is as is as old as cinema itself. So it's quite interesting to talk about. In yeah. I was very scared when I saw it. I paid my little nickel to go into the Nickelodeon. <laughs> in, and I believe it was... I was, was driving the train. <laughs> I, you were driving the train, yeah. And because... Yeah, you stole it. But I remember seeing it and thinking, yeah, this I've never seen anything like this before in my life. Sorry, yeah. the, the old Nickelodeon and London High Street. What is your horror origin story? What were the films that captured your imagination as a kid? It's really hard to remember what films exactly did it. But I, I one of the earliest things that I was kind of obsessed with weirdly which i think was a bit of a gateway was i had the vhs of michael jackson's thriller and uh, and it and it had on it the making of like documentary as well uh, and uh, i just remember as a kid being really really obsessed with that cool music video with all of the monster makeup and the zombies and everything and then also looking at how they made it with director john landis and everything i think that was kind of like what kind of really like got me into horror and then I I remember going, I grew up in the 90s and I watched a lot of the sort of classic 90s slashes. My first proper, proper horror movie was Wes Craven's Scream. And then I watched everything that came in its wake, you know, all of that crap. I know what you did last summer and Urban Legend. That's not crap. I mean, I I love them, but they are pretty terrible. Uh, And then... um, Oh, man. and And then I kind of went back from there. And then I think the good thing about Scream as a sort of gateway is that they talk about so many famous horror films in Scream. So I kind of used it as a point of reference. Like when they know, when they have a whole conversation about Halloween and A Nightmare on Elm Street and Psycho. And it's like, ah, and then I kind of checked out all of those movies off the back of seeing that, I think. So that was so sort it became of how it's a, It became a checklist for you. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So what year were you born? I was born in 87. Uh, right. So I was young, obviously. Like I, I, I first saw, because I had older siblings who I think had rented it from a blockbuster and I think I saw it with them. So I think I I was probably only about 10 when I watched Scream. Um, oh, so wow. I was introduced to so horror must, really young. So you must have felt it was scary. Yeah, I remember finding that opening scene with Drew Barrymore very scary but also at the same time really kind of exhilarating and really fun and I was sort of like oh mm. this is really scary but I'm kind of into it and I'm gonna keep watching it and uh yeah that was that was that was how it started I suppose so strangely it must be that you know even though that that film is a it's at least a 15 probably an 18 age 10 is probably the age to see it because I saw it how old were we when it came out, Joshua? That's what, 96, 13, 13? 14, 13, probably 14. like 14 or 15 by the time I actually saw it on VHS or TV. It did, it just I didn't did, see it until I was about 17. But it did nothing for me. I was way behind. Really? Most slashers don't. I'm not, I'm not big on the slasher genre. I like Freddy, but only because they're so ropey and fun. Yeah, they're not scary. <laughs> no, I think I think the slasher subgenre, and this is something I talk about on my podcast particularly, is like it's kind of for, it's it feels like it's kind of made for kids, doesn't it? I think like you, yeah. you you're supposed <laughs> to watch them when you're like thirteen, fourteen at sleepovers with your friends. I think you know, and I loved them and yeah. and wanted to tick all of them off. But then it wasn't until I started watching movies like The Shining, which and The Exorcist, and movies that actually truly frightened me on a sort of deeper, more subconscious level. I, I remember those being some of the movies that first truly freaked me out because none of those slasher movies did mm. really, yeah. But what age were you when you saw those more nuanced, subtle films like The Shining or The Exorcist? Probably a few years older, but probably still quite young for them. Like I reckon I was probably about 13, 14, something like that. You see, because I remember when I was like eight or nine, maybe 10, I was a a local sleepover at the local uh, Jewish youth group. And we had the TV on and suddenly the, the group leader said, no, you will turn that off because the Silence of the Lambs was going to be on. Oof. But quite frankly, <laughs> for a 10-year-old to watch the Silence of the Lambs, I would have to know about a lot of things that a 10-year-old wouldn't know about. Therefore, I wouldn't have found it scary. Yeah, possibly, mm. yeah, yeah. Same with The Shining, same with The Exorcist. Well, the really powerful thing about The Shining is that I don't think you have to even understand what's going on to find it quite frightening. Like, there's something about just the mood of The Shining. I remember mm. as a child, well, mm. again, as, as a sort of 13, 14-year-old, finding it so unbelievably terrifying to the point where I think I turned it off. Just in those scenes when Danny is just sort of riding around on his little tricycle and mm. seeing like weird, you know, those twins in the corridor or whatever it might be. There's just something about the mood and dread of that film that, that can kind of get you on a very kind of subconscious level. And yeah, probably didn't understand what the hell was going on in that film for most of it. I still don't, but you know, it's a, it's a very frightening movie. I think it just, it helps being an adult to really grip with the these these films i remember i was babysitting once and the parents said don't let the kids watch jaws and i'm thinking they're not gonna get it it's just a lot of it is understanding that the camera is the shark <laughs> yeah yeah but then i think you can, they will I, be bored i don't know i don't know would kids be bored in jaws i think i think kids would be scared in jaws so. i think you'd understand that sharks are terrifying even as a child i think mm -hmm. i'm not so sure i mean I, a lot of films that seem to be aimed at kids i'm pretty sure they'll find boring like the original star wars 
most of it's just chatting about Jedi shit for the first hour. And then you have a bit of, then you have like slight fighting kind of like you do when you're, you know, you've got two chopsticks and then some flying. Yeah. Well, that's fair. I actually do remember being a bit bored of the first Star Wars as a kid. Cause I watched, I watched Empire Strikes Back first cause I found it as like a taped off TV video that's going to be in confusing. the video cupboard. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. I just loved it. I thought it was fucking amazing. And then when I found out a new hope, came before that i watched it and was like this isn't as good this is lots of talking and yeah yeah obviously Empire they might Strikes as well have done that better. first yeah, one as so. a podcast <laughs> it's just talking <laughs> and segue to podcasts when did you decide to take your love of horror in one hand podcast in the other and then put your hands together uh i think i started the podcast about three years ago i kind of come from a project from a production background i worked at the bbc i used to produce the film program on the bbc and uh, i i sort of i don't know i think i just i wanted to make something that was about something i loved and i kind of had built these kind of skills and people that I knew that I thought oh I could ask some critics to be in certain episodes and I thought I'm just going to use what I know and what I've learned to make something that I love really which is just and it's just it's just a podcast as you probably know are just a great excuse to just chat about movies with your mates basically and now yeah I spend yeah. a couple of hours every week talking about horror films with just amazing people and it's it's awesome yeah I can't believe it's been three years. You've crammed so much into your podcast. Like you've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I've I've, I've pretty much been doing it uh, like every week for for three years. So that's a lot Gosh. of episodes, I suppose, isn't it? It's it's, yeah, it's there's really over a hundred episodes now. So yeah. And I suppose during lockdown, it's mm. even easier because you haven't left the house. It's been it's been re- it's been a joy actually through lockdown because <laughs> it's uh, living. The yeah, dream. it's just something to do, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I don't want lockdown to end. I'm quite yeah. happy. You touched on it there. You said you produced for the BBC, so you've produced the Inside Cinema. This is about 60 short mini documentaries, and now there's full-length hour episodes or something? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's been really nice. I've done that for the last couple of years. So, uh, yeah, the BBC launched this kind of Inside Cinema strand. It's like it's for iPlayer, and also you can you can get it on demand on TV. And now they've started doing hour specials that have been on BBC Four as well. But uh, so yeah, what they're, are they're essentially... what do they cover? What how did what's the format? It's essentially a video, uh, it's video essays. Basically, uh, the the short ones are like anything from five to ten minutes long. And they can cover literally anything, anything that so they all each one is written by a different person, voiced by a different person. They're usually critics, personalities in the film world. Um, we've done everything from a, an essay about like the Wilhelm scream to uh, men in uh, woolly jumpers in cinema to like I've <laughs> I done watched a, that one today. <laughs> yeah, I've done uh, a couple <laughs> of horror ones. We did one about we got Trixie Mattel to do a drag queens in cinema. Oh. We've done so like uh, there's I mean, that's the really lovely thing about Inside Cinema is that, that there is it can just be cinema related. And other than that, there are no uh, limits. So you can literally, the, the, hopefully the possibilities are endless in terms of what we can cover. Uh, I've just done one that I've voiced and written about jump scares, about the history of the jump scare, uh, oh. which is, which is going to come out in a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, so they, You don't know when fun. it's going to come out though. <laughs> yeah it's gonna surprise me at some point <laughs> um i watched the one today about witches which is voiced by uh elizabeth sankey who is a friend oh, of the pod friend of the podcast indeed nice she's, to see yeah. elizabeth doing something outside of um romantic comedy Rom-com. as well it's good to see her moving yeah. on doing other stuff 
Yeah, she's awesome, isn't she? She uh, is. She's, she's really done, fun. Yeah. She's done some amazing ones for us, actually. She did a really great one as well about bands, about bands in films. Uh, so mm. covering films like uh, Almost Famous and The Commitments and Blues Brothers. And just uh, that was a really fun one to do as well, actually. But yeah, we've had some amazing people. Okay, so keen-eared listeners will realise that we've covered The Witch before. But even though we covered it in our first episode... The film is so damn brilliant, it deserves another pass around. It is the 1600s in New England in America. William, played by Ralph Innocent and the deepest voice in cinema history. And Catherine, (laughs) his wife, played by Kate Dickey, along with their family, daughter Thomason, Anna Taylor Joy in a breakout role, Caleb, Harvey Scrimshaw in a breakout role, and twins Jonas and Mercy and newborn baby Samuel are booted from their plantation due to William's sin of pride, which of course is the worst sin of all. They resettle Mm. near some ominous-looking woods... Obviously, nothing can go wrong. And when Samuel goes missing, the family begins to spiral into a whole heap of trouble. But is it bad luck or is there evil afoot? Mike, have you seen The Witch before? I certainly have. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, I think I first saw it. Uh, I think I first saw it at London Film Festival um, when it premiered there. And I just absolutely loved it it's it would be one of my favorite movies of the last decade um and i've seen it i I, probably about 10 times since it since it came out what five six years ago so yeah i'm a i'm a fan yeah josh you've seen it sundance i believe i saw it yeah i saw it at sundance when it was literally just a listing in the magazine that you know the program that you get just said the witch by this guy called robert eggers nobody knew who he was he'd done a few shorts starring uh, you know that woman off Game of Thrones. If she wasn't even in it then, I'm not sure if she if it had even started. And yeah, and Anya Taylor Joy, she was the main image in the program, and everyone was like, "Eh, it's a film about a witch, whatever." And I was like, "No, it's a film about a witch. Like, we should go see this." And uh, I missed the first screening, and then after the first screening, it became the buzz film of that year at Sundance. It was like everyone had to see it. They had to lay on further screenings. I saw it at the Eggers Theatre, which is enormous, and it was absolutely packed. You couldn't move. It was completely full, and you could hear a pin drop. People were just completely taken over by it. They loved the film so much, they renamed the theatre after Robert Eggers. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Maybe it's not called the Eggers Theatre. I think it is, though. Why not? If you're going to premiere it anywhere... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. when am i gonna yeah. premiere my short that i'm gonna make i'm gonna have to find a cinema called like the gershenson screens the Gersh- <laughs> yeah i remember coming down the escalators at picture house central if anyone wants to close their eyes and imagine this coming down the escalators and by screen one you've between screen one and the members bar you've got about five movie posters all framed and lit up and one of them was this image of a goat or a ram and it just said the witch but it didn't say the witch it said the v v itch the v vich mm. and i thought oh mm-hmm. that's really that's really striking i had no idea what it was and it wasn't until i actually saw the film i think that i remember saying to joshua oh i saw a film called the witch you should probably go see that and that's when you were like, oh, so some dance, actually. I fucking love that film. <laughs> because I get, I get paid to go overseas and see films now. <laughs> it immediately... I wasn't saying that me. when I was terrified after watching it. <laughs> it. 
it genuinely is a, is, a, is a terrifying film, but I remember just absolutely loving it because I love a, a really strong visual style. I, I Just as a whole piece, I love a film that really leans into being a cinematic experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really yeah, is, isn't it? Completely it? Is. It's, uh, it go, going back to like what I said about The Shining, there's something about this film that is just it's just there's just so much mood isn't there it's like a mood piece uh it is like from the opening minute when you see those people and you see the woods and you hear that kind of choral music and the Mm. language the dialogue everything about it feels haunting and otherworldly and just terrifying like i was absolutely gripped and tense and and terrified from minute one until the very very end basically (laughs) i just i loved it so much and that doesn't change no matter how many times you watch it it kind of every time you watch it you get pulled under into this like really sort of portentous feeling of oh fuck oh fuck oh fuck like something (laughs) terrible is gonna happen yeah and it happens really quickly like within 10 minutes the baby's gone the witch has slathered herself in his blood and it's like, oh, okay, we're going there. Okay. And that, that's a really interesting thing that I think a lot of people seem to, for some reason, forget. Because I, I, I remember speaking to a few people that were sort of a bit negative about the film because they thought that the ending was too too, too over the top in that it became about a witch, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> so I, for some people, it, like, lost them at the point where the goat starts talking and all of the women fly into the air in the woods, right? But I, I was mm. like, well, what... I mean, within 10 minutes, you see this old crow nick a baby and like mash it up and then fly on a broomstick. Like what? Why were you surprised that the film The Witch turned out to be about a witch? Like I don't really, but I I saw a few sort of negative reviews sort of say that, which is interesting. But that's an interesting thing that they show The Witch almost immediately. And then the rest of the film is trying to work out, is there a witch? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's very clever, isn't it? Because then you're right. Mm. You you're then so involved in the drama and paranoia of the family that you almost forget that, like, yeah, no, they they showed you a witch. Like, there's definitely a witch in the woods, you know? Yeah, yeah. Bathsheba mashed up a baby <laughs> and got a like yeah. oil of lay with it, and then went yeah. flying. Yeah, which we've That's all done. That's the great thing about witch stories, though, is like witch. Like my boyfriend said this last night, so I'm totally stealing it off him. But it's true, is that um, it's never really about the witch. Like it's always mm. about what the witch does to other people and how people react to just the idea of a witch. Yeah. So the the idea that Thomason may be a witch, maybe she isn't, which is kind of what the family start to suspect and and actually. Um, accuse her of that's far more interesting than just being like here's a witch and she's now going to kill you all yeah well so often horror films about witches aren't like you said they're not really about the fear of the witch itself they're about the fear Mm. of usually it's some sort of patriarchal system that like will want to kill witches right or kill people who they call witches uh that's usually where the horror comes from and in this it's sort of a bit of both isn't it it's kind of uh Mm. it's sort of one begets the other almost uh in a weird way yeah Mm. Yeah, In, in a strange way it's there are documentary elements in this film that lean into what you just highlighted there, Joshua, because I guess 30 or no, this is a, so the film's set in 1630. So by 1692, that's when the Salem witch trials happened. So Mm. within livable life for let's say, 
you know, if he hadn't died, little Caleb, that's exactly mm. what would be happening, that there'd be this complete mass hysteria about these women who act in this certain way. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. the idea that they introduce the witch and then forget about the witch or remove the idea of the witch, I think it brings into question a unreliable narrator. Even though we, as the audience, see uh, Thomason playing peekaboo with Samuel and then Samuel's gone, mm-hmm. we kind of have to start questioning, well, is that the version of the story that Thomason wants us to know about? And that's the story mm-hmm. she's telling the family. Is she actually lying? Is she already uh, sort of taken over by the witch or by the devil at that point? Mm. Are we as the audience and therefore the yeah. family, have we been lured into a false sense of security? When did the devil enter the family life? Mm -hmm. yeah Mm. it's true and it kind of it leaves so much of that ambiguous for us as well doesn't it um and and i love that it doesn't it doesn't really feel like it's even taking that much of a sort of modern eye over any of these sorts of things either like it really Mm. the, the other thing about this film is that it robert eggers has managed to make a film that looks like it was actually made in the 1600s like everything <laughs> yes. about it feels so unbelievably authentic again from the it looks set like design. it's printed on parchment oh it's Especially just some yeah, of those really dinner does. scenes it's gorgeous and it's yeah. so weird and so creepy it's like these sort of weird sort of like tapestries that you'd see in some old church or something i don't know there's something really mm. creepy about it and and of course it introduces itself as a new england folk tale and so it really kind of feels like what you're seeing is just this creepy little folk story that may have even been a story at the time that people told each other around a campfire you know as well yeah Um, this is the other thing this is the other thing and i think i mentioned this on our episode one a lot of these films that we see the films like blumhouse that come out of blumhouse um anything from like the 90s or poltergeist they always have a, 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 a backstory quite often that is set in ye olde times. Something happened in the house mm. and now the spirits are back to fuck up the kids in, in the modern times. This is the backstory yeah. to a shitty movie set now. <laughs> because quite often the backstory yeah. is always the more interesting thing. The Blair Witch Project, I collected all the comics and the dossier that really went into uh, the backstory of who the Blair Witch is and uh, all the people that she sort of fucked over in the sort of Salem times. Yes, the Blair Witch Project is good for one watch, but it doesn't hold up to repeat viewings. And ultimately, it's not that enjoyable. The backstory is so much more fun. What Robert Eggers has done is he's gone, I'm not making the modern one. I'm going to make the backstory because it interests me so much more. Yeah, I mean, I completely disagree with you about the Blair Witch Project, but yes, uh, other than that, I (laughs) completely... You feel you can watch the Blair Witch Project over and over? Oh, I've seen it, like, hundreds of times. It's one of my favourite movies of all time, yeah, but um, I I love everything around it. I think it's a one-watch film. I saw it, whatever, October October 99 or October 2000 it came out. yeah. I don't feel I ever need to see it again. I do understand that. Yeah, totally. I, I, I'm a, I'm just such a fan of the craft of that, of like, of that film. Not the craft, of the craft behind that <laughs> I'm film. I'm the fan of the craft. Um, he likes but, the craft. Uh, Josh loves the craft. I mean, that's, a, that's another great witch film. It is, yeah. But, uh. I think this is my 
this is my hot take my hot topics with imogen right this is my hot take i think that for whatever reason the sins of the father have been implanted into the mother and have manifested as the baby so i think samuel is in part the devil so their trouble seem to start shortly after samuel is born then they're kicked out the plantation and then stuff starts happening because it's not a case of oh well the woods are haunted or black philip is haunted the devil can take many forms so i think that their troubles with the devil started long before the film and long before even we as the audience are fully aware of Mm. yeah very possibly i mean like obviously the way it starts it starts in a quite dramatic fashion doesn't it with them being sort of excommunicated and you Mm. think god what what's the prequel to this film like what happened to this family to lead them to be kicked out of this this sort of little village um and by by the janitor from urban legend yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) who is creepy what's he doing who is creepy uh yeah no there's there's definitely like we're we're dropped into the 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 middle of this family saga in a way aren't yeah. we um and mm. we're left to kind of figure out exactly what's happened to this family that's now left them in this place that they're in you know um yeah it's really interesting mm. i love all of that mystery behind it i do i think that the the great strength of the film is that you can interpret it in so many ways mm. even though robert eggers has said that he intended the the plot to be taken literally he intended it to be about a family get kicked out they encounter a witch, the witch basically destroys them or makes them sign a pact with the devil. But I like that he did implant things like the corn, the rotten corn has signs of ergot, which is like a hallucinogenic fungus. So that could explain why they're all behaving quite strangely and hysterically and progressively over time. Yeah, I had no Um, idea there was hallucinogenic stuff in rotten corn. Yeah. I might go leave a bag like... of sweet corn out of the freezer. <laughs> You'll be talking to the goat <laughs> in no time. Yeah. <laughs> Cheap drugs. Oh, I'm always having a chat with Black <laughs> Philip. He's always around here. But yes, it's like it's all these different layers that are in the film um, that, that could, every single time I watch it, I feel differently and I'm not entirely sure what I think is really going on apart from, like the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, there's just a witch. But you can peel those layers um, and is it is it just about fear of nature? Is it that they go absolutely mad because they're out in the middle of nowhere? They're starving. Um, you know, there's so many different things going on. Also, you and there's... you would think that if you're actually seeing a story in in a way about a sort of wicked witch and the devil, that the film would be taking a kind of. Um... Uh, sort of more traditional almost christian perspective right for that to be the case mm. uh this isn't either is it? it 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 feels like a real also a real kind of indictment of that kind of puritanical christian pe- sort of patriarchy that, that that they were living in at this time as well it's sort of very mm. i mean in in many ways it you know which witchcraft is the better alternative like i think we'd much rather go and be naked in the woods at the end and enjoy the taste of butter than what they were what they were suffering through before that kind of yeah absolutely um yeah so it's it's quite it's quite uh, again it's quite nuanced i think in the way it portrays all of these different sides oh i would definitely i mean i'm as a as a i'm speaking as a vegan here i would definitely prefer to have butter than the blooded milk of a tired goat yeah Yeah. yes please is there anything 
that you noticed this time round that you haven't noticed before? I did. I actually scared myself because I noticed, I don't know, I, I feel like this was on purpose, but there's a shot of when, I think it's when Thomason and Caleb have gone missing. There's a shot where the mother, played by Kate Dickey, she's walking towards the forest and the framing of the tree right ahead of her, it looks like a face. There are like two eyes and there's the tree coming down to form a face and it looks like this enormous face watching the family from the woods. Oh, I have not noticed that. I'll look out for that next fuck. time. Yeah. yeah. Have I, you I, noticed that before, Mike? Yeah, I think I have. There's and again, it's just like the 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 detail in the production design. And obviously they filmed it. I can't remember exactly what the sort of aspect ratio is, but it's it, it it's quite it's longer, right? Than it is wide and it makes everything look and yeah. it's and it's to get that it's, sort of it's, it's taller, to, yeah. It's taller. to get the, I think it's, it's closer to 16 by 9 so they get that yeah sorry to that's it yeah Panavision. so they so they get the heights don't they of the trees yeah. and there's a lot of those kind mm. of wide shots of the woods and those characters stood mm. in front of the woods kind of really tiny and it is and yeah. you do find yourself looking at the woods like they are a monster or something yeah he wanted to yeah. shoot it in new england where he's from he was like well i'll just shoot it in so-called my parents back garden but you know um but he couldn't oh. they had to shoot it up in canada for tax reasons but he, he was like adamant, I need these particular type of trees. So it took yeah. him a while to mm. find trees that are tall enough that look like they're from New England because he knew he needed that that tallness in the frame. I noticed mm. this time around, it's quite early on, Thomason is sort of um, mucking out the stable or something. She's doing something with a big stick and a rake. And the kids are playing outside and they're not listening to her. And there's this shot where she's silhouetted against the door, the, the, the sort of open door frame, and she's just stood there. And I just wonder, who is she listening to? Is she in conversation with someone? Does she realise she's in conversation with someone? Is mm. she already bewitched? Or is that the mm. moment where she becomes bewitched? Yeah, I because that's yeah I know I I, I love that about it because I'm never really sure but I I always assume that she doesn't become a witch that Thomasin is pure completely innocent until the last act of the film mm. and that that they've pushed her to it in a in a kind of self fulfilling prophecy kind of way mm. you know like you Definitely. accuse this woman enough and then she's going to choose yeah. witchcraft over you <laughs> basically yeah in a way I mean by the end she has no choice does she mm, exactly yeah and I love that the I love that the film plays around with like we've talked about the idea of the witch being there but it's like who is the witch like that it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy where the first shot of the film is thomason's face mm. and then by the end she has become the witch of the title essentially yeah exactly it's very it's very clever yeah it is really clever and i think like sometimes you think you know, they, you know in some risk in some regards they have to tread carefully i think with with something like that that deals with like uh you know, a sort of prelude to the Salem witch trials, right? Right, where actually, you know, mm. we all know that it was just hundreds of innocent women were just burned and murdered, yeah. right? And and I think the mm. film again does like quite a good job of of striking that balance of like, well, it's not necessarily saying that these women were all wicked witches and deserve to die. It's more that they, you know, this is the way that they were treated and this is how this caused this to happen. I think. And weirdly, yeah. four men and one dog. Ah, there you go. Yeah, yeah I've got a book of. The, yeah, about yeah, the Salem yeah. witch trials up here that I haven't read yet, but I have noticed that it says four men and one dog. Wonder what the dog did to uh, make oh, the thing. Poor, dogs. poor little, yeah. poor little fluffy. Does Thomason deserve our sympathies? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would. Say. <laughs> <laughs> but she doesn't seem to feel or show guilt for Samuel's disappearance, and then she doesn't really seem to take responsibility for Samuel or Caleb. Uh, why should she take responsibility for any of? Th- well, I don't know. Like, I, I, it's, mm. it, I never see it as her fault. Any of that? Like, she's a teenage girl who is. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay, she's babysitting that baby when it's stolen away from her. But I, I wouldn't say yeah. she should feel any guilt for any of that. No, I think that um, she is, she's just treated awfully from the beginning to the end. And I'm just rooting for her <laughs> <Yeah>. 100%, basically. <laughs> but if you left your yeah. baby with someone and they came back and said, oh, yeah, I had a really good day, went to the woods. And uh, oh, by the way, uh, the yeah, yeah, the baby was taken by a wolf. <laughs> you would be like, I left you my baby, and it's like the episode of Friends when uh, Chandler and Joey leave left the Ben on, on the bus, bus and then <laughs> yeah. Ross gets pissed yeah. off. If you've got a baby in your care, you need to make sure that the baby comes back and isn't intercepted by a wolf and/or witch. But she was she was doing the right thing. She was playing with the baby. She was keeping entertained. She literally didn't see him for what three seconds, and he was gone. I think that yeah, fast you can excuse witch. three seconds. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, super like, fast. Farrah fast. Yeah, totally. I agree. <laughs> no, I get, like she was. Uh, if if that was if I was the parent and I left my teenage daughter to babysit the baby. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't blame the teenage girl. I'd blame myself as the parent. I think. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a, a you know a sense of it that the the mother is so guilt ridden that she has no choice but to either go mad mm. or blame someone else, find yes. someone. But to that's blame. the one. That's the one thing that I was like, has that actually? Is that a slight modernization? Because I know obviously within the context of the story and just in life in general, losing a baby is horrific. But this is like the 1600s. Babies died every day. Like it was quite commonplace for babies to die. But it probably so, not. It's probably still sad that, you know, oh, I had a baby, but no, a wolf took it. Oh, you know, happens every day. Yeah, I just felt like the the opera, like the theatre of her grief was maybe slightly more because it is for a modern audience than maybe it would have been in reality. Yeah, and I think like from the mother's perspective, you almost get this impression that she's so she's more worried about the fact that she and her family are like damned in some way. Like I, I feel like you're mm. right. Like in some ways, maybe it's not just grief, but it's actually this idea mm. that like oh, we've been banished from where we lived. Now our baby's been taken away. I'm being punished like and I wonder if there's a bit of that to it as well and of course each of her children one by one get taken like that I think she is feeling like she's damned her soul is damned to hell or something isn't it I think well she has that she says she has that dream where she's no longer with Christ yeah that's that's her big confession you know his confession is I gave your cup to a man and Mm. her confession is I'm not with Christ anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Where's she from? <laughs> <laughs> Their accents were so all over the place. Oh, they're so good. I love it. I love it. They're like, brilliant, but it's like, yeah. you know, some are from Yorkshire. Yeah. Some are from North Yorkshire. Some are from yeah. Lancashire. Well, they're, they're like Madonna. They're transatlantic now. They, they've got the Madonna accent. That's what's happened. Uh, I've got another, the other theory. Oh, yeah. Well, just the, the other theory. We've obviously talked about various theories, but there is a lot of talk about the book of Job. And uh, <laughs> like in the Bible, God, God hurts Job as like a test of faith. So is, is this actually, you know, even though it's horrific and terrible, 
is is the witch acting or is are the forces acing through some kind of like godly power that, that he, Josh, are you wanting to ask tested. are you wanting to ask our favorite question <laughs> <laughs> is thomas in god <laughs> yeah i think that's all in there though isn't it definitely that it, it could be treated as like a little parable of like a test of their mm-hmm. faith yeah i think that's definitely how they see it like the family maybe or the parents you know that they're being tested or that they're being punished or that it's god's doing in some way that's the religious pious headspace that everything that happens to you is happening for a reason yeah you know what what is it Mm. the um what's it the blues brothers say that the lord works in mysterious ways we're on a mission from god everything is for god and because of god yeah yeah. For good or bad. Whereas I, I, I think that there's probably a complete absence of God in this story. Like, I don't think God is anywhere to be mm. seen. They are, like, on their own with the devil. But that was going to be another one of my questions. Yeah. Yeah. Why is God ignoring their prayers? God has forsaken them. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, did you not notice that William looks like Jesus when he's cutting up wood with that kind of white sheet around his waist? And the hair and the beard, he looks like the traditional version of Jesus. Yeah, he does. And also the moments when they're like praying at the dinner table and he's got his arms out like that, he kind of looks like a sort of, again, it looks like a sort of tableau of the Last Mm. Supper or something like that. It's the underlight on his face from the candles that makes him look one of the paintings, the one of the many photographs from the time of Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's really creepy though. (laughs) But it just makes makes me think, it always makes me think of that line from the usual suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. So Mm. is that what is happening here? That the, the devil is so powerful, he's actually able to remove the influence of God from their sphere so he can have complete, uh, power and you know he can have complete control over their misery Mm. Mm -hmm. because if we're talking about the devil then we have to assume in the context of the story that the devil is real and therefore god is real so if they're praying to god why is god not answering their prayers Mm. yeah that's it i think that's true because the, the film is pretty definitively really saying that unless you think that the last act is all in Thomason's head, maybe, but the film is pretty much definitively saying that the devil is real, right, at the end. And therefore, yeah, yeah you're right. That means God must be real too. But God is absolutely mm. not helping them in any way. <laughs> so, yeah, unless too, it is a too test. Far. He can't make it that far out in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> can't get the Wi-Fi. have to catch a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why did the witch send Caleb back? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. So that, uh, Is he too old to mash up? Yeah, what did she do to him? Corrupt him? Possess him? Has she, yeah. Um, Has she kind of done everything she could with him kind of thing? And there's, he just managed to get away. There's something kind of like really disturbingly sort of sexual about that stuff, isn't mm. there, with, with, with him? Uh, obviously the way that the witch looks when she's all seductive initially, uh, but then also when he is possessed and he's dying, he almost kind of looks orgasmic or euphoric or something mm-hmm. at that moment before he dies. Mm. It's like he's been... He's talking about, like, the, the kiss on my nape and the, the yeah. on my nape yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that just the most amazing bit of oh. acting you've ever seen from a, oh my God, it's from a, a, a child actor? It's just mesmerising, yeah. isn't it? That whole scene and the way the Shakespeare camera kind of level. moves over him and then comes back down mm. and it's just incredible. It's, it's stunning. Shakespeare-level 
dialogue and language and this kid is mm-hmm. seven eight nine maybe ten but looks a bit younger yeah and yet mm-hmm. he's he's acting with the the acting prowess of ian mckellen yeah <laughs> yeah mini mini uh, mini <laughs> ian mckellen yeah it's the it's the changes you know who some I can't, i've forgotten who was who said this but it's like the best actors are the ones where you can see what they're thinking in their eyes and you see the tra- this, the shifting things that are happening in his head, in his eyes, until the point where he's actually dead. Mm-hmm. And it's just, uh, it's fantastic. I hope yeah, that he's not one of these amazing. these young actors who do something amazing like this and then decide, no, I'm going to go do economics. I'm going to yeah. go be a maths teacher. <laughs> yeah. Get out of Hollywood, kid. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe it's for the best for his sake, but also I would love to see him do more because he was amazing mm-hmm. like all of them were i mean can we talk about how terrifying those twins are as well uh oh, they're yeah. little black philip black philip like they're <laughs> yeah. absolutely the stuff of nightmares aren't they those two little shits i fall on upon this crown clickety clackety clackety thigh bite the witch <laughs> That was The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up on the next episode. Oh, it's it's hard-boiled Eggers next. <laughs> you should be a writer, Joshua. <laughs> How long did it take you to come up with that one? I've been drafting it all day. <laughs> yeah. It's what I've spent Monday doing. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Acast and Spotify and anywhere you get your pods from so you don't miss that episode. We're on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Come and let us know if you were scared by the witch. Do you believe in witches? Are you a fan? Uh, just give us a shout, basically. And Mike, where can we find you? Uh, you can find my podcast, The Evolution of Horror, all the normal places where you get your podcast. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at EvolutionPod. We are off to guide our hand. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. I'm Mike Munzer. Hi. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Zero direction whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> Just expected to understand. <laughs> Cut. Cut.